Okay, good morning again. I'm Barbara Mann, and I'll be chairing this panel called Yiddish America. I'd like to welcome all of you back to this fabulous conference. And for, for those of you who weren't here yesterday, and even for those of you who were, I just want to remind you that there's a wonderful exhibit in the, the ground floor level of Firestone Library. It's a two-floor exhibit uh, in honor of the new Milberg collection, and there's wonderful photographs and letters and original documents and first editions and all kinds of fabulous things, two floors of great material to see in connection with the collection. And I'm going to put in a plug also for the issue of the Chronicle, which has in it unpublished work by Henry Roth and Isaac Basheva Singer and just a great miscellany collection of Jewish American writing. And that's on sale right outside this session. So without further ado, uh, I think we're going to have a spook now at every uh, session. We're anxiously awaiting Irina Klepfish's arrival. I'm hoping that she'll, she'll get here during the course of the session and she'll just come up on stage. And we will begin with uh, Catherine Hellerstein, who is currently Senior Fellow in Yiddish and Jewish Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, a translator and a poet. She's translated and edited New York, a selection of poems by Moshe Leib Halpern, and Paper Bridges, selected poems of Kadia Molodowski. She's also one of the editors of the Jewish American Literature, a Norton Anthology, which was published just this year. And the title of her talk this morning is... Translating and Selecting a Norton Anthology, Jewish American Literature. Professor Hellestein. I'd like to start by thanking Professors Esther Shore, Barbara Mann, and Froma Zeitlin for inviting me to participate in this landmark conference celebrating Jewish American writers. I'm delighted and honored to join in the inauguration of the spectacular Leonard L. Milberg Collection Jewish American Writers at Princeton University, which Barbara just mentioned. Um, and I'm looking forward, as someone who lives in Philadelphia, just 45 minutes or so away, to making use of this collection and resource in the coming years. I'm sure that all of you know the feeling of combined reluctance and pleasure that one feels returning to a book that is, for the time being, out of one's hands after a long and intense period of working on it. In this talk, I am not going to try to reconstruct the four-year pro process by which my co-editors, Jules Chemetsky, Don Felstener, and Hylene Flansbaum, and I put together this anthology. I've suppressed most of the details, despite my overflowing file cabinet papers. Rather, I'd like to talk about some of the consequences of the choices that we made in selecting works from the perspective of a teacher, namely myself, who is now using this book in a course on Jewish American literature. As you all know, W.W. Norton publishes anthology, but what you may not know is that there are two, at least two types of Norton anthologies. The huge and sometimes multi-volume, all-inclusive surveys, such as the Norton Anthology of American Literature, or the Norton Anthology of African American Literature, and the more focused and, and much shorter collections, such as Literature of the American South, a Norton Anthology, and Postmodern Fiction, a Mo Norton Anthology, to which series Jewish American Literature, a Norton Anthology, belongs. Despite the somewhat more modest scope of our book, at the outset, I succeeded in persuading my co-editors and also our editor at the press, that it was important for Jewish American literature 
to present the full historical range of Jewish writing in America, beginning in the colonial days and not only of the past 50 or so years. Thus, alongside the obvious choices of Philip Roth and Cynthia Ozick, Saul Bellow and Grace Paley, uh, Abe Kahan and uh, Mary Anton, we included much lesser known figures, such as Mordecai Manuel Noah, an early 19th century playwright and politician, and Ada Isaacs Mencken, a mid-19th century poet and actress who wrote long free verse monologues like her friend Walt Whitman and was notorious in her day for having written a horse on stage wearing only a flesh-colored bodysuit. In order to select the works for part one, The Literature of Arrival, 1654 to 1880, Eileen Flansbaum and I immersed ourselves in a period we had not known before, and I, for one, became caught up in these early voices. However, I must confess that when I began to revise my syllabus for the Jewish American Lit course I've been teaching at Penn off and on for the past, I don't know, seven or eight years, at first, I felt nervous about teaching these early texts. I worried that my Penn undergraduates would find them dry, obsolete, and of purely historical interest, as one critic of our anthology complained, intending his phrase to toll literary death. That critic, however, was wrong. The students have loved these selections. The, 15, the 1656 petition to Peter Stuyvesant, governor of the New Netherlands, from Abraham de Lucina and his fellow Sephardic Jewish merchants in demand, demanding in respectful yet forceful prose the right of Jews to enjoy the same liberty allowed to other burghers or citizens as well in trading to all places within the jurisdiction of this government as in the purchase of real estate, and that was a quotation. This spoke loud and clear to my students and to me about how the early concepts of econ uh, economic, political, and civic equality was, were argued in the New World by immigrant Jews more than a century before the establishment of the democratic United States. As for literary matters, the students picked up right away on how the obsequious tone of the letter basked its powerful argument, and they reflected upon the ways that writers can manipulate rhetoric and tone achieve their ends with a hostile and powerful audience. The class collectively recoiled from a reactionary sermon preached on the holiday of Shavuot in 1773 to the congregants at the Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, by a rabbi visiting from Hebron in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Chaim Isaac Harigal, who quoted, or the students felt misquoted, King David and assorted Talmudic rabbis, as well as quote, the most authentic Roman historians, to urge his listeners not to rebel against the British monarchy. Some members of the class were also were shocked at the chutzpah of the Revolutionary War figure, Chaim Solomon, who did not mince words when exposing an anti-Semitic rival banker in Solomon's letter from a Jew broker, and they were more comfortable with the neoclassical elegance of Jacob Henry's 1809 address to the North Carolina House of Commons, in which Henry does in the so-called gentleman who has tried to keep him out of politics because he's a Jew. Others were touched by letters written in the 1790s by a young bride 
Rebecca Alexander Samuel to her German-born parents from the tobacco town of Petersburg, Virginia, complaining of the difficulties of trying to live a traditional Jewish life when the shochet, ritual slaughterer, sowed tarefa, pray for non-kosher meat, when the minion or prayer, prayer group lacked a copy of the Sefer Torah and had to pray without wearing either the talit, the prayer shawl, or the arba konfot, the small set of fringes worn on the body ritually by observant men. And when the Jewish shopkeepers in her area conducted business on the Sabbath and the holiday. The class noted how liberally Rebecca Samuel used these Hebrew terms in her prose, a marked contrast to the public speeches and letters that we had read, although we all wondered at why this German-Jewish writer, who was probably, whose parents were probably Yiddish speakers, had come up with the Sephardic spellings of these transliterated terms. I'd love to see the manuscripts of these letters. The 1778 diary entries of Mordechai Sheftal, a Jewish commissary general for the revolutionary troops in Savannah, Georgia, document in vigorous and graphic prose the writer's courage when he was captured by the British army. And also these entries reveal how his native Yiddish tongue saved him when he spoke it to the Hessian or German mercenary soldier who was guarding him for the British. He didn't get any answer from the British uh, officers who were guarding him, but when he found a Hessian and spoke Yiddish or Germanized Yiddish to him, uh, he got food and water and paper to write his diary on. Isaac Leeser, the rabbi of a still-thriving Philadelphia congregation, Mikveh Israel, in, preached to his congregants in 1845 about the dangers of Christian proselytizing and the need for Jewish parents to educate their sons and daughters in Jewish practice and history before sending them out into the tempting arenas of secular learning, colleges, and finishing schools. Leeser's sermon, with its extended metaphors of New World rivers, the Delaware River flowing through Philadelphia, and the Amazon River, which doesn't flow through Philadelphia, <laughs> reveals as much about his immersion in the atmosphere of American romantic writers as it does about the cultural crisis that his con congregants face. In an 1845 poem, Miriam, by Panina Moisi, an unmarried woman living in poverty in Charleston who wrote Jewish hymns in English that are still sung in some reformer congregations today, and who was, I think, the first Jew to publish a book of poems. Her collection, Fancy Sketchbook, came out in 1883. My students picked up in this poem, Miriam, on an unexpected anticipation of the present moment. Miriam, which appeared in the Charleston Miscellany in 1845, a collection of local authors, Jewish and Christian, from Moise's hometown in South Carolina, depicts the biblical Miriam, Moses' older sister, as a heroic prophet and poet, an interpretation of this figure, somewhat sidelined in most readings of Exodus. Um, it, 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 it puts forth an interpretation of this figure in 1845 that has been uh, since reiterated by some of today's Jewish feminist critics and poets. There's much more I'd like to say about why including works from the early period in the anthology strikes me now as the wisest of decision, decisions, but for lack of time, I won't. 
But if I did have the time, I would mention how Isaac Mayer Wise's American Israelite editorial, the 4th of July, 1858, proposing the innate Jewishness of American democracy by equating Passover with the 4th of July, made my students laugh, and how intensely they responded to the pairing of, of Mordechai Manuel Noah's ostensibly non-Jewish play, uh, written and published in 1808 but never produced, the Fortress of Sorrento, and by the way, he cribbed the plot from both a French novel and from the libretto of Beethoven's 1805 opera Fidelio. Okay, you know, go put that in your hat. <laughs> Pairing that book, uh, that, no, that play, The Fortress of Sorrento, with the unknown novelist Nathan Mayer's 1858 chapter from The Fatal Secret, exclamation point, or comma, Plots and Counterplots, colon, a novel of the 16th century, a serialized novel in, um, in Isaac Mayer Wise's newspaper, in which the priest of the Portuguese Inquisition turns out to be a converso, a hidden Jew, who helps the condemned escape on Yom Kippur. <laughs> and also how a close reading of Emma Lazarus's poem, The Synagogue, I'm sorry, In the Jewish Synagogue at Newport, 1867, uh, reading it against Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's 1858 poem, The Jewish Cemetery at Newport, made my students see exactly how a young Jewish writer can transform American literature into Jewish American literature. And I, yesterday afternoon, I was very excited to see um, displayed on the second floor, along with the wonderful Yiddish works, which I'm going to turn to now, and which I adore and love and work on very deeply. Um, I was also very excited to see the works of many of these writers, these early writers that I've mentioned, including uh, Fek's uh, big reproduction of Emma Lazarus's poem in the synagogue at Newport uh, in the Milberg collection um, at the library. So, Yenugshoin, enough. The topic I'm supposed to be talking about is Jewish, is, well, it's Yiddish America. Indeed, my primary contribution to this anthology was to ensure that it reflected the range of languages that Jews in America have written in and to show how central a part of Jewish creativity these languages have played. Thus, we include a significant representation of writers in Yiddish, as well as a taste of American writing in Hebrew and of Sephardic writers, some of whose works echo the Ladino or Judeo-Arabic of their parents and grandparents. I wish we'd had the pages to include more Hebrew writers, such as Shimon Halkin, and translations of Ladino songs or tales. Perhaps with a second edition, God willing, we will. In the introduction to part two of the anthology, The Great Tide, 1881 to 1924, I wrote that works in Yiddish, especially the poetry of immigrants, produced during the early decades of the 20th century, form a uniquely Jewish American literature, the heart and soul of all Jewish American literature that developed subsequently in English and the most distinctively modern of the Jewish literature. In the selections of Yiddish poetry and prose that dominate part two and are a significant presence in parts three and part four of the anthology, which go from 1924 to 1945 and then from 1945 to 1973, I attempted to represent some of the best of Yiddish American writing. 
Had I but world enough in time, as well as an unlimited budget from Norton, I would have commissioned all new translations for this volume, particularly of previously untranslated works, thus reconfiguring the perception of Yiddish literature in America that was established from the mid-20th century onward by the anthologists Irving Howe and Eliezer Greenberg in A Treasury of Yiddish Stories, which was first published in 1953, A Treasury of Yiddish Poetry, which was published in 1969, and by Benjamin and Barbara Harshov in American Yiddish Poetry, which came out in 1986, and by Irving Howe, Hanush Meruk, and Ruth R. Weiss in the Penguin Book of Modern Yiddish Verse, which came out in 1987. I didn't want to define our Yiddish selections only according to the admittedly wide-ranging but still focused taste and values of these other anthologies. Each one, of course, is great in its own way. And my, my major concern was that these anthologies, I think, have behind their, um, their, their richness of Yiddish and English texts, I mean, Yiddish texts and the English translations, They've emphasized modernism, and they've shied away from religion and politics, not to mention they've represented women writers um, in what I think is a very limited way. So in order to broaden our anthology's perspective on Yiddish writing in America, I drew from other, even more anthologies that had different agendas or orientations, feminist, political, and devotional, as well as from recent volumes in translation of individual poets, and also I scoured the journals, you know, the 20th century magazines and journals in English looking for other translations of Yiddish poetry and prose. The very few new translations that we did include in the anthology were done gratis. Although there are many problems involved when one anthologizes from other anthologies or collections, there are some benefits as well. The best part in choosing in this way was that I was able to include translations by a wide range of Jewish American writers in English, dead and alive, including Marie Sirkin, Saul Bellow, Adrian Rich, John Hollander, Joachim Nograschel, Marsha Falk, Adrian Cooper, Irina Klepfish, Irving Feldman, Cynthia Ozick, and Robert Friend. Such inclusion emphasizes the often unanticipated and unexamined connections between the earlier Yiddish writings and later Jewish writers in English. My desire to represent the literary and historical importance of Yiddish poetry, fiction, and drama was deepened by a wish to present the anthology's readers with an actual Yiddish text, and to give them a chance to reflect upon some of the problems of translation. Thus, I was able to convince Norton to print two important Yiddish poems in Yiddish and in transliteration, Moisheleib Halpern's Memento Mori and ironic commentary on the modernist Yiddish poet's isolation as of 1919, and Anna Margolin's I was once a boy, uh, which is a reversal of all expectations for what a Jewish woman poet might write in her so-called autobiography, about 1925 or so. It seemed to me important to have the American reader of this book face, if only for a few moments, the Yiddish letters in their movement from right to left, 
and to realize the magnitude of the cultural and linguistic journey into English that these immigrant writers and their descendants have made. To further emphasize the complexity of Jewish American literary endeavor, I insisted that Moishe Leib Halpern's Memento Mori, and the title of his poem, by the way, is in Latin characters in English, even in the Yiddish texts, that I insisted that this poem be represented in English by two translations, by John Hollander's, and maybe I should say Lahavdal, by mine with Benjamin Harshav, as an invitation to the reader to compare and contrast the way rhyme and literal, literality, the way rhyme against literality, the struggle as any translator does with the demands of form, syntax, and tone as she or he carries the poem from language to language. I am a diehard Yiddishist in this way, and I will go to almost any length to force the unwitting reader to return to the Yiddish, which is what even my non-Yiddish reading students often have to resort to in the transliterations when they begin to puzzle out the differences between these two translations. Why is it important that works written in America in Yiddish, Hebrew, and other languages appear in this volume? The presence of these other languages, even if mostly or only in translation, helps to reconfigure a sense of Jewish American literature. Consider how European is the accepted dualistic notion of Yiddish as Mama Loshen, the mother tongue, the vernacular, and Hebrew Aramaic as Loshen Koidish, the holy tongue. In America, the dualism plays itself out differently. In the 1890s, Gershon Rosenzweig and Abraham Kotlier punned in a revived sacred Hebrew in order to satirize immigrant culture in their two different works, which we lumped together under the title The Yankee Talmud. From the 1930s onward, Gabriel Pryle in New York City and Ephraim Lizitsky in New Orleans made Hebrew into their poetic mamaloshin. And after the Holocaust, Kaja Molodovsky and Jacob Blotstein wrote poems that transformed Yiddish into a new kind of Loshen Koidish, leading to Cynthia Ozick's 1969 novella, Envy or Yiddish in America, and Jacqueline Asheroe's 1996 poem, Ich will schreiben a poem auf Yiddish. That's how she transliterates Yiddish. Okay, it's a wonderful poem, but she doesn't know Yiddish. As English becomes the mother tongue of American Jews, the Jewish languages, Yiddish and Hebrew, take on different roles. The distinction between the languages of the Jews and the languages of the rest of the world, between insiders and outsiders, blurs. And what's so interesting about juxtaposing the earliest writers with the immigrant writers is the degree to which the Jews in America had, by the 18th and early 19th century, made English into their mamaloshin, into their mother tongue. In my class, I'm finding it instructive to look at the ways that contemporaries treat similar topics in English and in Yiddish. For example, both Abram Kahan's English short story, A Ghetto Wedding, published in 1898, and Avram Raisin's Yiddish short story, The Equality of the Sexes, translated by Max Rosenfeld and published originally in Yiddish in 1911, depict Eastern European Jewish immigrants getting married, but reveal very different tones and messages. Kahan's English story teaches an audience of American Gentiles to see through their stereotypes into the humanity of the immigrants. 
while Raisin's Yiddish story makes the Yiddish readership look bemusedly upon how their own anxious bourgeois values surface when they pay lip service to radical politics and free love. I'm grateful to find, as I teach this anthology, more and more echoes and conversations arising between the different tongues and times and types of Jewish American literary works. Although this anthology includes so much and such variety, it is not the final word on, Jew on the Jewish American canon. Necessarily, there were many fine writers, translators, and works, past and present, that we had to leave out. And today's and yesterday's and tomorrow's programs reflect the, the, the boundaries of our anthology and the large range uh, beyond which um, it Jewish American writing. There was at least one Jewish American writer also who, seeing himself included in the anthology, protested, saying, I've never been a Jewish writer, so maybe we'll leave him out next time. I don't know, or maybe not. Jewish American literature is alive and well, thriving and changing as I speak, and I hope that this anthology will contribute to the growth, continuation, and debate of and about Jewish creativity in America. Thank you. Our next speaker is Hanavir Nesher, who is the, a professor of English and the Samuel L. and Perry Haber Chair on the Study of the Jewish Experience in the United States at Tel Aviv University. Whoa, that's... <laughs> Her publications include City Codes, Reading the Modern Urban Novel, uh, published in 1996. She is the co-editor of... These mics are sort of weird. How's that? Okay, she's the co-editor. This is Chana Nesher. She's our next speaker. She's the co-editor of the forthcoming Cambridge Companion to Jewish American Literature, and her current work in progress is entitled Call It English, The Languages of Jewish American Writing. Currently, she is a visiting professor at the Department of English at John Hopkins University. Professor Ignatia. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to uh, add my appreciation for the Milford Collection, which will be extremely valuable uh, to the work. Can't, I'm sorry. Um, I'd like to add my appreciation for the Milberg Collection, which will be extremely valuable uh, in the work that I will be doing in the future. Um, and thanks to the organizers of the conference. And thanks to Catherine Hellerstein and her editors for the Norton Anthology. It's not the Norton, I know, it's the other one. I can never remember that. <laughs> um, a, a landmark work that I'm using in my teaching now. Very important contribution. I'm going to talk about Yiddish as accent and trace and how it lingers in Jewish American literature, particularly in the work of Mary Anton, which is not written in Yiddish, but in a way it is. And that's in the prologue to The Promised Land, published in 1912, Mary Anton makes her famous declaration in the opening sentence. I was born, I have lived, and I have been made over. I am as much out of the way as if I were dead, for I am absolutely other than the person whose story I have to tell. Several chapters into the book, she makes the following observation. In after years, when I passed as an American among Americans, I thought it miracle enough that I, Mashke, the granddaughter of Raphael the Russian, born to a humble destiny, 
should be at home in an American metropolis, be free to fashion my own life, and should dream my dreams in English phrases. Her claim in the first statement recounts her life in terms of death and rebirth. Quote, physical continuity with my earlier self is no disadvantage, she adds. I could speak in the third person and not feel that I was masquerading. This is the rhetoric of conversion, the story of the transformation of the spirit within the same body. The reception of her book repeatedly stressed this motif. Quote, Mary Anton was 12 years old when she stepped out of the Old Testament into the New World, was one reviewer's response. In short, her immigration to America was a move from Old to New Testament, from Saul to Paul, from the Russian Jewess Mariasha to the American Mary. The second statement, midway into the book, is not easily compatible with the first. She observes that she can pass as American, that from her appearance and behavior, Americans assume that she is one of them. The very notion of passing, as we all know, implies performance and deception. Performance as deception. It would appear to be the very opposite of her earlier claim of absolute rupture with a former self. For here she proposes that physical or behavioral changes in her person enable her to perform as an American, but that some essence of herself remains unchanged. Hence, she can pass, but she has not been entirely transformed. Indeed, she needs to pass because she has not been transformed. So Mary Anton contradicts herself in her autobiography. So have many other autobiographers. We don't expect consistency in this genre. But Anton's contradiction is worth examining because her immensely popular book was hailed for generations as the paradigmatic immigrant autobiography, and Anton as the ideal immigrant. The Promised Land received enthusiastic reviews in the press and welcoming receptions in public libraries throughout the United States. For those unfamiliar with the work, The Promised Land is an immigrant autobiography, the first half devoted to a description of her life in the Pale of Settlement in Russia up to the age of 12, the second half to her Americanization in Boston, written when she was 29. The first part documents many details of her life in Russia, from the forbidding boundaries between Jew and Gentile, the fear of pogroms, and the religious customs that regulated her world, to the taste of cherries and the sight of poppies. The second part traces her education as a patriotic American, her pride in Washington, Lincoln, and in the English language. She chooses not to document her personal history as wife and mother, concluding with the image of her adolescent self seated on the granite ledge next to the entrance of the Boston Public Library, contemplating a progressive view of human history that reaches its apex in the United States of America. Quote, I am the youngest of America's children, and into her hands is given all its priceless heritage. Mine is the whole majestic past, and mine is the shining future. Antin's representativeness has always been taken for granted. For American Gentile readers, her passage from old world to new, her embrace of America, and her ability to adapt, her famous transformation, conversion to America, made her the exemplary immigrant. So celebrated that Theodore Roosevelt requested her photograph to put alongside of that of Jane Addams. For many Jewish readers, her autobiography is the document of assimilation, of erasing her Jewish past and seeing her Americanness as the natural destiny of the Jew. And in recent years, in the spirit of ethnic literature, Jewish readers have scrutinized the pages for slight hesitations for the dutiful and accepted ambivalence of the loyal Jewish American. Also captivated by Anton's typicality, I would like to turn to her version of a widespread feature of Jewish literature, namely its bi- or multilingualism, first observed by Balmachshovitz at the turn of the century in his essay, Zwei Sprachen in Einziger Literatur, 
And in America by Shmuel Miguel, 1941, in his book, Bilingualism and the History of Jewish Literature. Mary Anton's preoccupation with language is compounded by her being an immigrant, having arrived in the U.S. at the age of 12 from the small town of Polotsk. Throughout her autobiography, whether Anton stresses the rhetoric of conversion or the rhetoric of passing, her main area of concern is linguistic. For her, the English language is sacred. She invests it with the attributes of religion. Quote, I shall never have a better opportunity to make declaration of my love for the English language. It seems to me that in any other language, happiness is not so sweet, logic is not so clear. I am not sure that I could believe in my neighbors as I do if I thought about them in un-English words. I could almost say that my conviction of immortality is bound up with the English of its promise. Not only is English sweet and logical, it is also bound up with belief, trust, and immortality. It is a miracle for Anton that she could, in her words, dream my dreams in English phrases. It was miraculous to her that she could write in English. And at the conclusion of her life story, she sums up her achievement with the following, quote, I learned at least to think in English without an accent. In other words, Mary Anton could write, think, and dream in English, but when she spoke, she did so with an accent. Her body, the physical continuity that she asserted was no disadvantage in her conversion story, nevertheless, constituted the obstacle to her complete transformation. For accent is the body remembering. The language into which she was born, her Yiddish mother tongue, would inevitably leave its imprint on her tongue. Anton could learn the English words, could be converted to the repertoire of English idioms, concepts, and intertexts, but she could not always simulate the sounds. Jewish immigrants during the first half of the 20th century were passionate about and at times obsessed with acquiring English. In the novels of Abraham Kahn and Angie Azerska, seasoned English speakers take on the sensual charm of Henry Higgins in romantic scenes that revolve around diction. In Kahn's The Rise of David Levinsky, a lover's quarrel expresses itself in Dora's gloating over Levinsky when he utters an English phrase in a Talmudic sing-song. And Levinsky's retaliation by pointing out that she had said nice where nicely was in order. In Yazerska's Breadgivers, schoolteacher Sarah Smolensky nearly swoons in front of her pupils when the principal Hugo Zelig places the tips of his fingers on her throat to teach her the muscular control necessary to pronounce sing rather than sing GGG. <laughs> the immigrant zeal to acquire English was matched by the native zeal to preserve the purity of the language. From the late 19th century through the first decades of the 20th, Americans debated the merits and demerits of standardization and developed a taste for dialect and local color writing. Speech representation as dialect reflected mutually contradictory assumptions. On one hand, regional and social inclusiveness, linguistic pluralism. On the other hand, faith in the oneness of a common tongue that could accommodate other voices, but only to confirm a united country and a uniform language and diction. Webster had assumed that all dialects, rustic as well as elite, would melt into a hegemonic national standard obeying rational laws. Although the American Dialect Society moved in the direction of breaking down the barrier between language and dialect, Americans were vigilant in the defense of standard English. Henry James put it most bluntly. Lower East Side cafes, the haunts of Jewish immigrants, were in his words, quote, torture chambers of the living idiom. The accent of the future, according to James, as it is affected and infected by foreign dialects, shall not be recognizable, <clears throat> quote, we shall not know it for English. In this atmosphere of fierce ambition to speak and write English correctly on the part of Jewish immigrants and of heated debates about national standardization of English, 
Mary Anton accepted Ellery Sedgwick's offer to publish parts of her book in the Atlantic Monthly. Quote, My friends will congratulate me on a literary success, writes Anton to Sedgwick, but I have no mind for praise or approval. Since I am called to the forum, I pray that no error passes my lips. This is the only success I long for. What Anton is truly referring to by being called to the forum is the bar mitzvah ritual, in which a young man is called to the bimah, the forum, for the first time to read aloud a segment of the weekly Torah portion. The short commentary or dvar Torah that is also customary for the bar mitzvah to prepare may be greeted with polite assent or even indifference, but the slightest slip in pronunciation of the holy tongue will be met with a loud communal correction. In this rite of passage, mispronunciation is error. Erroneous articulation of sacred words calls for rapid intervention so that the sanctity of the Hebrew text is preserved. Mary Anton had been called to the Bima, to the forum of her American congregation, readers of the Atlantic Monthly, and she prayed, quote, that no error passes my lips, and if it does, she won't pass, will she? If Mary Anton saw the publication of her autobiography as her bar mitzvah, an allusion that Sedgwick was unlikely to recognize, it marks her passage into adulthood, her transformation into an American. The Jewish male rite of passage, oral Hebrew literacy, demonstrated by recitation of sacred texts in an assembly, is reconceived by Anton as English written literacy, the publication of her secular life story for a congregation, a nation of invisible readers. Insofar as speech is an embodied act of communication, one that requires presence, the disembodied act of writing in which the author's actual voice is absent and words are realized only in the mind of the reader should have guaranteed linguistic passage. Since writing does not require pronunciation, the English book should serve as the ultimate promised land. Anton says as much in what would have been the concluding sentence of the prologue had she not deleted it. Quote, this is what I mean by how my personal salvation is involved in the writing of her story. Anton's personal salvation depended upon writing in English her story, that of Mariasha, who has given way to her new self in every respect but the ghostly Yiddish trace detected in her speech. Given this acknowledgement of the power and liberation of writing, it is truly remarkable that Anton's written text dwells compulsively on speech. Applying herself to mastering English, Anton would have encountered rhetoric and composition manuals at the turn of the century that insinuated race and class into language study. Hybrid words whose parts are derived from different languages were referred to as mixed breeds. I'm quoting now from one of the manuals that were prevalent at the time that you probably would know. Mongrel formations of this kind should be avoided. Even rhetoricians who conceded that hybridity may sometimes yield rich species drew on racial stereotyping to make their point. For example, quote, a priori, mongrelism in language as in race offends not only a cultivated taste, but also that sense of the fitness of things to which man owes many a practical. Anton's declaration that she could pass needs to be read in the context of the discourse of race for both Jews and African Americans during this period. On one hand, Anton at times labels her Jewish identity as racial, as when she attributes her gift for languages, quote, to my race, I was Jew enough to have an aptitude for language in general and to bend my mind earnestly to my task. On the other hand, Anton justifies writing her autobiography at so young an age by putting it into the category of, quote, one who has encountered unusual adventures under vanishing conditions, unquote. And then penciling, penciling in a name between the lines on the manuscript, a name that never saw print, Booker T. Washington. 
published a decade earlier, Up From Slavery, the account of a former slave's passage to freedom, served as an American paradigm for her own exodus from czarist Russia to the new promised land of America. Although Jews were treated as a non-white race in 1912, in the binary of American racial politics, Eastern European Jews would redefine themselves as white. Anton's unpublished reference to Washington bears witness to the racial dimension of passing in her own mind, as well as her reluctance to go on record as identifying with an African-American autobiography. Conversion is a story of personal salvation. Passing is a story of personal escape, of camouflaging an aspect of one's identity in order to cross a line imposed by a vigilant exclusionary society. Although passing in America had come to be associated almost entirely with race, only five years before the publication of The Promised Land, William Sumner stressed the class dimension of passing, in which language plays a central role. He describes the figure of the parvenu that was widespread in literary treatments of the subject. I quote, If a man passes from one class to another, his acts show the contrast between the moors in which he was bred and those in which he finds himself. In other words, if passing across the class line is a matter of breeding, then it partakes ambiguously of both meanings of the word, the innate and the acquired, the biological, racial, and the cultural. Manuals caution students to be on the alert for telltale linguistic slips that signal passing attempts. Quote, words are closely allied to manners, and when you hear a person speak of a clergyman as Reverend Jones instead of Reverend Mr. Jones, you naturally think of the speaker as a person who eats with his knife. <laughs> Inadequate knowledge about church protocol, it seems, is tantamount to being a boor. The would-be pastor gives himself away no matter what he says, as the very same manual that cites dread of colloquialism as evidence of the parvenu goes on to say, the speech of many persons who pass from one class to another is marred by colloquialism. Anton's obsession with acquiring language in the New World is read back into her Old World memories, which also dwell in her facility with languages. She recalls her Hebrew lessons, chanting psalms verse by verse. Quote, what I thought I do not remember, I only know that I love the sound of the Hebrew words, the full, dense, solid sound of them. I pronounced Hebrew very well. She was never modest. Um, I caught some mechanical trick of accent and emphasis. So eager was Anton for language instruction that she stole her older sister Fetchka's primer for learning the Russian alphabet. Quote, before anyone hit upon my retreat, writes Anton, I could spell B-O-G, bog, and then she puts in parentheses, God, and Kaza, goat. Insofar as her move away from the languages associated with her Jewish culture are also moves away from her religion, it is not surprising that her memory of the first word that she ever wrote in an alphabet other than Hebrew is the word God writing God's name, tetragram in the original Hebrew would have been a blasphemous act, as would pronouncing that name aloud. Here, Anton performs a double act of translation, first transliterating God's name from the Cyrillic alphabet into the beloved Latin alphabet, the medium for English, and then translating the word into English in the parentheses. The first step in her conversion to the holy English language is violating the Jewish taboo of writing and speaking God's name in Hebrew. As if to highlight this boundary crossing, Anton practiced writing the entire Hebrew alphabet in a column on the blank page of the manuscript of the Promised Land, facing this one about acquiring the Russian alphabet. She did so in imperfect order, omitting three letters, and from top to bottom, as if to avoid the negative image of right to left. This return of the repressed Hebrew alphabet in the form of doodling signals her consciousness of Jewish customs regarding writing and speaking the sacred tongue at the very moment 
that she is relating her acquisition of the Gentile Cyrillic alphabet. The secular move ironically conveyed in the writing of God's name in Russian and English is also mirrored in her doodle as she reproduced the letter Vav in the secular Yiddish, the double Vav and not in Hebrew. This memory of her acquiring literacy in a non-Jewish language, coupled with her imperfect recall of Hebrew, enact the very drama of her secularization. Small wonder, then, that the ultimate rite of passage as an American is the visceral boundary crossing of ingesting forbidden food, in her words, un-Jewish meat, at a tea presided over by her revered and genteel English teacher, Miss Dillingham. At this mock Eucharist of ham, and ham sandwiches and tea, in the presence of the high priest of English diction, her innards fiercely resist assimilating the ham into her body, just as her lips resisted pronouncing English words. But she perseveres with that, quote, pink piece of pig's flesh until she triumphs over parochialism. Quote, I began to reduce my ham to indivisible atoms and uh, indivisibility. And in digesting that pork, she is transformed into, quote, the heir of the ages. I am the repository of all the wisdom in the world. In this chapter entitled, What Else? Miracles. She also maintains that it is, quote, doubtful if the conversion of the Jews is ever thoroughly, thoroughly accomplished due to the persistence of Judaism in the blood. In contrast to her flawless Hebrew diction, she rehearses her painful struggles to speak English. The entire initiation chapter in the New World is given over to speech, pronunciation, and overcoming accent. For her fellow Jewish pupils and herself, the definite article posed an almost insurmountable obstacle. Sometimes the class resolved itself into a species of lingual gymnastics in which we all looked as if we meant to bite our tongues. Even when she, when she relates how she learned to write rather than to speak, her moment of illumination was her sudden recognition of the role of accent in the sense of stressed syllables and prosody. Now I knew about accent. Now I could write poetry. The physical obstacle to proper diction was acknowledged in rhetorics of the period as well. In the language debates between usage or law as standards of correctness, some manuals discuss diction in terms of mother tongue, so that many of these manuals would say, for example, language is the product not of man's mental faculties, but of his physical organism as well, um, in which he is acquiring his mother tongue, and later man is bound by this physical condition, once again the body remembering, the same way the body remembered and couldn't eat the ham. In other words, as Anton knew well, pronunciation reveals how culture is inscribed onto the body. In Anton's case, it is the arena where faith and performance, conversion and passing, culture and race merge. No matter how profound the spiritual or intellectual conversion, the internal crossing over, the performance of the new self occurs within the constraints of personal and collective history. As long as the mainstream culture monitors these differences and invests them with value judgments, they constitute a physical barrier to assimilation. Now, given her dreams of speaking English flawlessly and her discovery that writing held out the promise of language perfectibility, it is surprising that beyond the recurring theme of diction in her work, she also appended a key to pronunciation at the end of the book. The key to pronunciation reverses the position of the reader, who is invited to reproduce the sounds of the culture that the author left behind. The native-born American is now in the same disadvantaged position as that of the immigrant experiencing the body as a site of cultural and linguistic memory. So all of her, her Gentile readers were trying to pronounce the word shadchan. In her key, half of the words that she chose to illustrate particular sounds are associated with the body. Um, o, uh, you as in mute, oi as in joint, you as in pull, and je as in seizure. 
Her example for correct pronunciation of the letter L is failure. I'm, the, the fierce desire to dissociate herself from the person she once was takes many forms in the book. So excruciating is her memory of her heavy accent after her arrival in the U.S. that she disrupts the first-person autobiographical voice, referring to herself in the third person. In her account of an incident in which she almost drowned while swimming with an American boy, he speaks in uneducated English. You was scared, weren't you? While she speaks with an unmistakable foreign accent, the girl understands so much and is able to reply, you can schwim and I not. <laughs> Bet your life I can schwim in the other mocks. It is only two pages from this scene that Anton makes her triumphant claim that years later she passed as an American and she dreamed her dreams in English phrases. In the same letter to Ellery Sedgwick, in which she prayed for no error to pass her lips in pronunciation, she also asked for his approval to publish the work as Mary Anton, but to name herself in the autobiography as Esther Altman. Now, perhaps because the Old Testament heroine Esther would represent her old world self, or as would Altman, old man, as her antithesis. One month later, Anton requests at her Gentile husband's bidding that, quote, my true name, Mrs. Graybow, is not divulged in connection with my writings. Her explanation is that, quote, the wife of a Christian American citizen will have less trouble about passports than the Jewish authoress of naughty sentences. At the same time that she admitted to only passing as an American, she feared that her public exposure in the autobiography would sabotage her social standing. Quote, I shall keep to the name Mary Anton, she wrote Sedgwick, and we agree to try and keep my real identity a secret. So Mrs. Graybow writes the autobiography of Mary Anton, her former self, a work in which she claims both to have been transformed into Mrs. Graybow and to be passing as Mrs. Graybow, a work in which she exposes her secret identity as Russian-Jewish-Yiddish-speaking immigrant to masses of American readers in disembodied accent-free English, while simultaneously refusing to expose her social identity for fear that she will no longer be able to pass. Ironically, it is Mrs. Graybow who would be speaking rather than writing in a telltale accent, no matter how slight. One way to read Mary Anton's work, as I've attempted to do here, is to historicize, to redirect the interest in her typicality away from the broad themes of immigration and assimilation to the place of language, orality, literacy, and accent, both, uh, both in relation to race and class. Now I will conclude. Um, at different points in the book, then, her Jewishness is in her blood and her Americanness in her soul. At other points, her Jewishness is in her speech and her Americanness in her writing, her foreignness in her accent and her assimilation in her authorship. Yet Anton's patriotic embrace of America made her so attractive to mainstream Gentile readers that they insisted on the physical transformation that was prerequisite to crossing over into their world. Nowhere is this stated more succinctly than in this, this headline, Where Else?, in the Christian Science Monitor, quote, Tales of Race Characteristics Altered by Residents in America, of the article. Facts showing change in the physical characteristics of races subjected to an American environment have been forthcoming from anthropologists for some years, and the promised land is proof of that claim. I will conclude with a stunning newspaper clipping pasted into her scrapbook. Quote, the impression made by Mary Anton's career is not unlike that of Helen Keller. <laughs> Insofar as the old world of Russian Yiddish Jewish culture is, in the worldview of this American reviewer, analogous to being both blind and deaf, then her passage to America and her acquisition of the English language is the passage to civilization itself. Like Jim and Huckleberry Finn, who equates all of the human species with one language, if a Frenchman is a man, says Jim, why don't he talk like a man, namely English? 
The author of this headline casts the Jewish-American immigrant out of culture altogether until she reaches the shores of the United States. In an environment in which her Jewish identity is likened to the young Helen Keller, it is not surprising that for Anton, thinking and writing without a Yiddish accent was the promised land. Our next speaker is Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Chandler. Uh, Jeffrey is currently assistant professor in the Department of Jewish Studies at Rutgers University. He has published widely and lectured on such topics as modern Yiddish literature and culture, Jewish memory culture, American responses to the Holocaust. He's the author of While America Watches, Televising the Holocaust, and an editor of the forthcoming anthology of autobiographies written by Jewish youth in Poland, which were collected by the Ivo Institute in the 1930s. Currently, he's working on a study of Yiddish culture after World War II, and the title of his talk is Materializing the Mother Tongue. Thank you very much. Uh, what I'd like to do is just uh, position what I'm going to say vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, my other my co-panelists' uh, presentations. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about literature, but um, my talk will address some of the same uh, questions about the place of Yiddish in American Jewish life that was raised uh, by these two very, very interesting papers. And uh, something to contemplate, and perhaps to discuss afterwards, is the resonance between what's happening in American Jewish literature during the period in question uh, and uh, the time and place and material that I'll be looking at and that you'll be looking at, too. We have slides. If we could have the first slide, please. Uh, I guess we'll find out once we have the first slide. Okay. On a shelf in my office, I've accumulated an assortment of objects, coffee mugs, refrigerator magnets, lapel pins, greeting cards, and other items, all bearing one or more Yiddish words. Uh, nearby is a stack of comic Yiddish-English dictionaries. In a drawer is a collection of T-shirts bearing one or more Yiddishisms. Some of these objects came from friends or relatives. I found others in stores, catalogs online, or in the homes and offices of acquaintances. It says millennium schmillennium. Does it require further translation? I don't think so. Which in itself is significant. Uh, recently, I began to think about the value of these items as artifacts. Just, uh, just what do they say about the meaning of Yiddish in America during the past half century? As part of a larger study in progress on Yiddish culture after World War II, uh, my appreciation of these items, which one might easily dismiss as frivolous or in questionable taste, has been growing. I've come to see them as embodying some of the sweeping symbolic transformations of this language in the decades since the war. Indeed, their lowbrow silliness both belies and contributes to the complexity of their value as artifacts. These collectibles, all mass-produced items made or sold in the United States at some time since the late 1940s, prove to be provocatively rich objects of interpretation, especially as materializations of a Yiddish culture quite different from that of the pre-war era. Their analysis reveals profound changes in Jewish notions of vernacularity in response to signal shifts in language use and, moreover, in the symbolic value that is invested in language. 
First, note that most of these items, such as this novelty paperweight, <laughs> Romanize Yiddish rather than using the olive base in which Yiddish is usually printed. Romanization may be understood as a symptom of or a concession to diminished Yiddish literacy, but it can also be seen, as uh, Catherine Hellerstein mentioned earlier, as a proactive effort to make the language more widely accessible, at least phonetically, to those who don't know how to read Yiddish in the Aleph base. The use of Latin letters also facilitates integrating Yiddishisms into English or other languages that use the Roman alphabet. This in itself constitutes a radical transformation of the semiotics of Yiddish as a Jewish language. But the most striking semiotic feature of these objects is their atomization of Yiddish. They consistently present Yiddish as something less than a whole language. Indeed, they imply that Yiddish cannot be thought of as a complete semiotic system, but is rather inherently fragmentary. This can occur even when the fullness of Yiddish is invoked, as in the case of this Yiddish version of magnetic poetry, one of several such magnet sets. The mini-dictionary accompanying one of these explains that, quote, Yiddish is a complete language full of dramatic expressions. Yet while there are several hundred words in these sets, including such colorful terms as ungepatschket, bashert, and gotinu, one has to struggle to write simple, ordinary sentences with these kits. They don't, for example, provide such basic elements of the language as all the pronouns or most modal verbs. A comparison with word lists of similar length proposed for beginning students in secular Yiddish schools is instructive, whereas these inventories offer basic denotative terms for common everyday phenomena, the words in the magnetic poetry sets focus on the extreme, the particularist, and the richly connotative. Other items in my collection reinforce the... Reinforce the notion of Yiddish words as highly charged linguistic fragments by presenting individual Yiddishisms within an English language text, as for example in this greeting card. And here's the inside. In such instances, Yiddish is offered as an implicitly vestigial code whose semiotic completion is now dependent on other fuller languages. There is then an inherent retrospection in these objects. Even in works in uh, current production, such as these cards, uh, might be seen as mementos evoking a time when Yiddish functioned as a self-sufficient vernacular. These Yiddish artifacts epitomize what Susan Stewart characterizes as a key aspect of souvenirs in general. They are, by definition, always incomplete. Stewart argues that the souvenir, quote, must remain partial so that it can be supplemented by a narrative discourse which articulates the play of desire. Here, the metonymic nature of the material object reinforces the fragmentary quality ascribed to Yiddish. The narratives that complete these isolated Yiddishisms situate them in discourses that are often deceptively simple, given their modest, lowbrow form. But by their very nature, they can offer powerfully, if tacitly, ambiguous statements about vernacular Jewish culture through language play and the play between language and materiality. Inscribing Yiddish words onto objects displayed, used, and especially worn can endow them with the symbolic power of the fetish. This is exemplified by T-shirts imprinted, imprinted with Yiddish words, including this one which bears the word Yiddish itself, which has long been available from the Yiddishist organization Jugendhof, as well as another T-shirt, which features the text of an abbreviated Yiddish dictionary. 
The wearer of these and similar garments embodies the language, taking on whatever symbolic value he or she has invested in Yiddish speech and, by extension, its speakers. Significantly, the wearer does so without necessarily uttering a word of Yiddish. Vernacular speech is replaced here by putting on and taking off a second symbolic skin, behavior that invokes, yet is quite different from, a polyglot's code switching. Rather, these T-shirts are an example of ethnic branding, transforming the Yiddish word into a logo for folkhood. The anthropologist William Peets notes that fetishes are of particular interest as they articulate cultural relations forged, quote, in singular moments of crisis in which the identity of the self is called into question or put at risk. In light of this, we should consider what cultural crises of identity might engender the attraction to these objects and how they facilitate responses to these critical moments. To do so requires scrutinizing not merely the objects themselves, but also the context of their acquisition, display, and use. Although most of the items I've been collecting have no explicit ritual use as it is understood in traditional Jewish life, many do have an oblique connection to ritual through modes of play, transgression, mockery, and inversion. Their mock ritual role emerges when these items are juxtaposed with traditional Jewish ritual objects. Thus, one might consider this Mahjong Maven mug as a kind of mock kiddush cup, which sanctifies the Chinese gambling game within American Jewish life. Or consider the implications of the Mr. Mazel Bank. <laughs> Even without its inscription, this comical figurine of an Orthodox Jewish man who serves as a receptacle for coins is a transgressive figure on several counts, flouting the traditional ban on making idols, verging on Jewish caricature, and spoofing the traditional pushka or alms box. The Yiddish-English name on the bank's base consolidates and extends the provocative playfulness of this object, inscribing it as a fetish of Jewish luck. The parodic link between the legitimate and the mock in these objects is hardly an innovation of contemporary American Jewish culture. It recalls what Don Miron has identified as the anti-folklore of masculic Yiddish writers of the 19th century. Here, too, is what Miron calls a cultural paradox, rooted in contradictory attitudes towards the language and an equivocal attitude towards folkways. By making the ritual and material culture of traditional East European Jewry the subject of their satires, Maskilim preserved folkways as they mocked and sought to eradicate them. These texts also derive, and I'm quoting from your own here, extraordinary vivacity from the counterpoint of the most heavily destructive caricaturistic satire on the one hand and an almost childlike delight in artistic play on the other. Might one therefore see these mock Yiddish artifacts as works created within a Yiddish tradition of satirical preservation and destruction that was more than a century in the making by the end of World War II? Just as 19th century Maskilim often articulated their association of Yiddish with the mode of satire by juxtaposing it against the other languages in their milieu, these objects generally express mockery through language play that takes place not within Yiddish, but in the movement back and forth between Yiddish and English. This can be seen most directly in the Oi Oi Yo Yo, available from the National Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. And they come in a variety of lovely colors. This object concretizes language play rooted in the inverse relationship of reading Yiddish from right to left versus English from left to right. But note, however, that the mirror play of oyoy and yo-yo doesn't really work in the olive base as nicely as it does in English. Imprinting these words on an actual yo-yo materializes their interlinguistic playfulness. 
As a souvenir of the book center, this item celebrates a delight in the notion that Yiddish and English can have reciprocal semantic value. But at the same time, it obliquely acknowledges the importance of English as the facilitator of Yiddish culture for most supporters of the organization, even when it comes to the language's quintessential diphthong. A more elaborate form of language play takes place on another materialized bilingual pun, the Yiddish cup. (laughs) A coffee mug that plays on a familiar Yiddish idiom. Now, there are several versions of this item. It seems to be very popular. And on one that I own, a Yiddish cup is translated as a smart person, not an unproblematic translation, and also features uh, on the cup uh, nine other Yiddish terms with English glosses. These range from straightforward definitions, maven is translated as expert, nudnik is translated as pest, to translations that are deliberately playful. Naches is translated as grandchildren. Geschmack is translated as Jewish cooking. <laughs> Machetenista is translated as opposition. <laughs> and Mishpacha is translated as cousins club. <laughs> Reading these objects requires knowledge of both Yiddish and English, as well as the Jewish cultures they signify to appreciate their humor. And I'm glad to hear that quite a few of you have this facility. They thus exemplify, and you thus exemplify, what Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet identifies as the essence of immigrant bilingual humor. Quote, the alternation from one language to another is not the result of incompetence or illiteracy, but rather constitutes a celebration of considerable skill in the manipulation of the available linguistic resources. In addition, the mock glosses that appear on the Yiddish cup are implicit definitions of an American as opposed to East European Yiddish culture. This is signaled not only by the American Jewish institution of the Cousins Club, but also by an American post-vernacular transformation of Yiddish terms generally as markers of Jewish ethnicity. Thus, in a full vernacular Yiddish, Italian or Chinese food can be just as geschmack as Jewish cooking. But not here. What is invoked is a yearning for Yiddish tam. At the same time that immigrant Jewish culture is celebrated by this Yiddish cup, it suggests another less felicitous meaning, though I doubt that it is intentional. By implicitly reducing Yiddish cultural literacy to a handful of words, has a Yiddish cup become an empty vessel? I ask you. (laughs) The limited number of words on it notwithstanding... The Yiddish cup is part of a genre of Yiddish mock dictionaries, such as this one, a souvenir card from Sammy's Romanian Steakhouse in New York. This and similar texts are formatted like dictionaries, but rather than giving the equivalent glosses of Yiddish into English, they offer bogus humorous definitions. As Esther Romain and Jack Kugelmas have observed, these faux glosses indicate the meta-meanings that Yiddishisms have acquired, especially in a post-immigrant American context, wherein Yiddish has become both a comic marker of social immobility and an affirmation of ethnic origin. These mock definitions skew one set of meanings as they reveal others. They use the safe space provided by humor to probe the ambiguous affective responses generated by linguistic upheaval and the breaking down of cultural barriers. Yiddish mock dictionaries appear in print on sound recordings and on the Internet. They can be found on such ephemera as cocktail napkins and business cards, such as the one you're looking at, further flouting the notion of the language as something substantial. Indeed, the full inventory of various comic Yiddish-English dictionaries well outnumbers that of the legitimate ones. At the same time that they mock the notion of Yiddish as a fully viable and expressive vernacular, 
Comic Yiddish-English dictionaries also flout traditional cultural boundaries wherein Yiddish is understood as an exclusively Jewish code that signifies Jewish difference. In exposing the Jews' secret language to public view, the authors of these comic dictionaries focus on key areas of the lexicon. Besides culturally specific terminology, words associated with Jewish ritual and custom, they emphasize the immoderate, especially terms dealing with emotional extremes, and the unmentionable, notably words related to sex and elimination. This shift in language usage and semantic value was observed by Uriel Weinreich in the early 1950s. As a language such as Yiddish in post-war America, quote, loses its main communicative value, he wrote, it seems destined to acquire peculiar connotations and be applied to special functions, especially comic associations. One also sees a selective borrowing of its lexical elements, notably colorful idiomatic expressions with strong affective overtones, whether endearing, pejorative, or obscene. The focus of these terms, on these terms in one comic Yiddish dictionary after another suggests a shared understanding of their meta-value of the language as carnivalesque, inherently subversive, transgressive, emotive, and appetitive, centered on the lower half of the body. This phenomenon is epitomized by two objects in my collection that link snacking with Yiddish as a signifier of excess and vulgarity, enabling one literally to consume the carnivalesque. Meshuggah nuts, produced in San Francisco, and the Alter Cocker, distributed by Herman Nut Company of Omaha. What makes uh, Meshuggah nuts, which is on the left, a Yiddish artifact is not the contents, which are pecans coated with a cinnamon-flavored meringue, but the container, which is covered with Jewish-English idioms and Yiddish terms, from the Ganef-proof seal on the top to its manufacturer's label, which reads, delivered by Schlemiel's on wheels from Meshuggah nuts, incorporated. Indeed, the Yiddishisms and comic Jewish banter on the canister mark the enclosed delicacies both as faux ethnic, there's a bogus family history of old world immigrants who ostensibly originate the recipe, of course, completely made up, and uh, as genuinely excessive, indulgent, transgressive, a snack food that materializes Jewish irrationality. Similarly, with the altar cocker, which is labeled food for the caulking impaired, what matters is not the contents but the container or rather the juxtaposition of the two, chocolate-covered cashew nuts inside a transparent caulking gun refill tube. Here is a Yiddish vulgarism materialized, linking the language with a mockery of the digestive woes of the elderly. One of the most subversive uses of Yiddish in material form is produced by a non-Jewish enterprise, the gefilte fish. And this is a plastic ornament available from evolvefish.com, an organization based in Colorado Springs, which is, quote, dedicated to countering the destructive aspects of religious zealotry, by which they mean Christian religious zealotry. This is a variation on the Christian symbol of a fish inscribed with ichthus, the Greek word for fish, which began to appear as a decorative symbol widely seen on car bumpers and jewelry and T-shirts and so on in the United States in the 1960s. Like its subversive predecessor, the Darwin fish, which is also made by EvolveFish.com, and this features the same fish silhouette inscribed with the famous evolutionist's name and the fish sport's two feet, the, uh, the gefilte fish flouts Christian fundamentalism, but does so not with natural science, but rather with Yiddish ethnicity in the form of one of its quintessential delicacies and, less obviously, with Jewish piety. The careful observer will spot an OU symbol, the sign of the Orthodox Union's approval of food products as kosher, which appears near the fish's tail. 
My collection does contain other materializations of Yiddish that are not mock in mode. Uh, lapel pins, cards, and other tokens of secular Yiddish culture at its most earnest or items that employ the language as a sign of sentimentality, especially those that pay tribute to a Jewish grandparent. Still others use Yiddish as a signifier of traditional Ashkenazic piety, from potholders and other kitchenware marked milchik and fleshik to, to these uh, adhesive stickers given as rewards to Hasidic children. By virtue of their high degree of self-conscious, uh, uh, self-consciousness, artifacts in the mock mode can be especially telling, tracing shifts in the significance of Yiddish as a repository of ethnic heritage among some American Jews of the post-immigrant generations. This is exemplified by two of the more elaborate artifacts in my collection, box games produced in the mid-1960s and mid-1990s, respectively. The earlier of the two, called Chutzpah, was produced by Hobbit Toys and Games of Kalamazoo in 1967. Modeled on Monopoly, players of Chutzpah work their way around a game board that situates them in a contemporary Jewish-American milieu of middle-class comforts. On its box, Chutzpah is subtitled The Game of the Good Life. Chutzpah is marked as such by references to geographic settings, such as the Catskills or Miami, activities such as getting one's nose fixed or joining a country club, and acquisitions such as a mink stole or wall-to-wall carpeting, together with the liberal use of Yiddishisms on the game board and instruction cards. Read against Monopoly, Chutzpah is true to its name, constituting a celebration of brazen Jewish-American self-assertion. The game embodies a post-immigrant, post-Holocaust sensibility that also pervades American Jewish comic works of the period, such as the stand-up routines of Lenny Bruce, some of the satirical fiction of our man of the day, Philip Roth, or the early films of Mel Brooks. These two often rely similarly on Yiddish words as signposts of an economic, geographic, social, and cultural journey, thereby offering both a sense of attachment and a sense of distance. A generation later, Yiddish again appears as a sign of the carnivalesque and the mock modes in a 1995 game called Look at the Schmuck on that Camel, which I will refer to hereafter as Camel, produced, uh, produced by Victory Games of Baltimore. The game's provocative name, which provides its visual icon as well as a thematic focus, comes from the punchline of a joke printed in Leo Rostin's popular book, The Joys of Yiddish, published in 1968, one year after the chutzpah game that we just looked at appeared. A comparison of these two games provides one measure of American Yiddish culture over the course of a generation. Chutzpah employs Yiddishisms throughout and provides a mock dictionary, this is the, from the inside of the box, um, provides a mock dictionary to gloss them, thereby assuming that this practice is familiar to players. But the play itself focuses, like Monopoly, on acquiring and spending money in pursuit of the good life. In Camel, acquiring familiarity with Yiddish words basic, as well as comic meanings, is its end rather than its means. Indeed, on its box cover, it promises to assist players in, quote, getting over the hump in learning Yiddish. Camel materializes the sensibility of one stratum of American Yiddish culture as it passes from the descendants of Yiddish-speaking immigrants who came of age in the early post-World War II years to the next generation. Here, the older generation's comic inventories of Yiddish terms, epitomized by Rostin's book, become, which by the way was just reissued in a revised uh, edition, uh, these become the implicit source for the next generation's Yiddish heritage. They receive this language play as the code of ethnicity itself. 
Understood as inherently fragmentary, mock, and carnivalesque, it is therefore to be learned as such. Significantly, members of the post-immigrant generations elaborate this heritage not by expanding the repertoire of Yiddishisms or bilingual jokes, but rather by inventing materializations of them. Thus, the camel game comes with a brochure for ordering a variety of items, a cap, a mug, golf balls, and so on, bearing its logo. This suggests that the sites of cultural creativity and the networks of distribution may have shifted from language-based activities, such as code switching and joke telling or writing literature, uh, to other areas of contact and expertise, merchandising and consuming. Moreover, as gifts of a mock heritage passing between generations, these and similar items in my collection suggest ambivalent feelings about inheriting Yiddish. Giving one of these items might be understood as a gesture of cultural homage on one hand, a tacit acknowledgement of cultural breakdown on the other. To conclude, I'd like to offer a few brief thoughts <laughs> on the appeal of these artifacts. Besides their symbolic value, their linguistic and cultural playfulness, and their socio-historical timeliness. There is also the appeal of their materiality, especially their low brownness, to consider. Materializing language offers the promise of concretizing the most evanescent of cultural enterprises. In the case of Yiddish in post-World War II America, these objects ostensibly stabilized the language during a state of manifold upheaval. The nature of its speech community, its lexicon, its semiotics, its relationship to other languages are all in flux. In doing so, these items fix the language as a sign of linguistic and cultural tenacity. Moreover, lowbrow, salacious, ephemeral materializations reinforce associations of Yiddish with the vulgar in its multiple meanings, especially during moments when the vitality of Jewish vulgarity appears to be both endangered and attractive. This is doubtless uh, part of the appeal of these items a generation ago, when for many, living with questions about identity in a state of useful discontent was, according to Irving Howe, perhaps what it meant to be a Jew. Finally, I wonder about the implications. Uh, this is not a political statement. This is just an artifact for your consideration. Finally, I wonder about the implications of the current spate of materializations of Yiddish, especially for those younger than I am. What does it mean for generations having no direct connection to native speakers of Yiddish to encounter this language as a fragment of a whole with which they have no acquaintance, as uh, mocking sensibilities with which they are unfamiliar? What does it mean to encounter Yiddish as a collectible, a souvenir of experiences that they've never had? Thank you. Thank you all for a set of wonderful, rich papers. We do have we do have some time for questions. James, go ahead.
But this, this re- I just want to repeat, I, we've been in uh, uh, Greek diners in the Upper West Side where we've heard people come in, sidle up to the counter, and to ask the, the person behind the counter for un bagel por favor con schmier was the, uh, always is a very New York story. But this, but this leads actually um, to a question after Hannah, which is um, in a society uh, composed of immigrants, it's, it isn't the idea isn't the idea of an accentless he- uh, English uh, really the immigrant's idea of what, you know, what should be, as opposed to the reality on the ground? I remember in... In what period? Well, uh, really uh, 20th century uh, in this country. And I'm thinking in, in Israel, also the great you know, immigrant society, uh, uh, Applefeld told me once that perfect Israeli Hebrew is by definition accented <laughs> because it is the language of immigrants, right. in fact. And that only somebody, you know, coming to Israel with the idea of what should be, you know, would, um, you know, would miss this. And, and could the same be said about American English? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that the most interesting aspect of, of the research that I've been doing for myself is, is looking at these manuals and composition rhetorics. I've just given a small sampling of that. I have, you know, reams of material. Um, and I think it's important to recapture the atmosphere at the time that Mary Anton was writing this. Um, in which um, many of the manuals say that uh, there is such a thing as a normative accent and words are used, words such as contamination and, and defective pronunciations, um, uh, and then, you know, Webster and so on. And this was the, the one time that America also considered a, um, a sort of central ministry of language the way you have in France and, uh, and in Israel and, you know, didn't materialize. But it was, an, I think, uh, really an example of the fear and the dread uh, people felt, not only because of these, you know, the Russian, because of Yiddish-speaking immigrants, but generally hordes of immigrants. So I think it does have to do with, certainly, with period. And so a lot of this sounds, sounds jaded uh, in an age of Christian Amanpour, right? Um, uh, in which, of course, you know, multiculturalism means multi-accent, and there isn't one accent, but, uh, but not when she was writing this. And I think it's important to, you know, from the late 19th century through the, through the 50s and 60s, even, even beyond that, I'm looking at the traces of this obsession with pronunciation in written texts by both immigrant writers and the children of immigrants. Okay. Grace. I just want to say
NG defect? <laughs> okay, hold on just a second. Over here, there's one, and then two, and we'll take a couple more. Why don't we collect a few questions? There was another. Go ahead. Yeah.
There was one more. Who was three before? Go ahead. In the light of the Martin Child was English. On that note, yes. We'll take maybe two more questions, please. Orit. Just very quickly, um, just a Sidra's comment back, back, back a few. Uh, uh, I think you're very, very right. The question was about uh, uh, the materializing that goes on in a sort of symbolic attachment to the land of Israel as uh, something that you collect. Uh, in, a, uh, in a very grand scale and in a sovereign way as opposed to what the kind of stuff I'm looking at. And I think it's, 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 it's very provocative to think of uh, that kind of materiality uh, as having become uh, so central to post-World War II uh, Israeli culture, both for people living there and for people living uh, abroad. Uh, and, but it has an interesting uh, precedent both in uh, souvenirs uh, from the uh, pre-48 era, models of, of the um, various shrines, uh, things made out of what, what, what struck me about looking at these materials is their substance is what mattered. They were made out of genuine olive wood or genuine Jerusalem stone and so on. And it seemed to me the ultimate uh, example of this, which is actually a very old traditional one, is um, uh, having uh, bags of what we call in Yiddish Eretz Yisroel Erd, little bags of soil that you uh, are supposed to be buried with that's supposed to hasten your return to the land of Israel uh, when, uh, at the beginning of the, the Messianic Age. Um, I think uh, about books as artifacts, uh, something to think about uh, is the, the place of the book as an artifact at the National Yiddish Book Center in which they basically separated the two functions of books. Books as uh, store, uh, stores of, of information because they're now 
have digitizing their collections so you can make uh, reprints of, of the books. And books as material objects that you, uh, you don't necessarily read, but you, you look at, or as uh, uh, the, the architect of the building said, that you smell. And that you go into the building, it was designed with open stacks so that you could smell the old books. Uh, so here we have books suddenly having a new function as, 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 as uh, uh, some kind of you know, perfume of memory. Uh, and uh, so I, I think it's, it's a very provocative area to be developed. Very quickly, on other languages, uh, this was Uriel Weinreich's point, was that this was happening with other languages, and he meant other immigrant, uh, uh, European immigrant languages of people who came to the United States at the same time that most of these East European Jews came, uh, 1880s to, to World War I. Um, uh, what I think is important to consider, and Spanish actually is a very good example of the difference, is that um, uh, with many of these languages, there is a homeland, or in the case of Spanish, multiple homelands with which you have an ongoing complicated interface. Uh, with the case of Yiddish after World War II, uh, something at the center of all this material that never gets talked about but is there is that the, the heartland of, of Yiddish had just been very cruelly and abruptly destroyed, and that makes it in many ways very, very different. Yeah, um, I want to respond to, to Sidra's point, um, uh, which I think is well taken, and just take it, in fact, even further. Um, the, the recent findings of, you can't hear? Okay. The recent findings of archaeologists uh, such as Israel Finkelstein and, and Zev Herzog um, undoing some of the work that Yigal Yadin did, they find that the greatest resistance when they give lectures in Israel is not among religious Jews, but when they go to the secular kibbutzim. Um, and Aviezer has called this secular fundamentalism, uh, so that the object, the shard, you know, is desacralized, and it's, it's, it's the secular, secularists who can't really, you know, bear that. Um, so I think it's a very interesting point. Um, uh, one more point with regard to what you said and, and, and Jeffrey's presentation. Um, I, I keep thinking about your anthology and about Alvin's comment this morning about the people of the, of the book and the way that the, the fragments of Yiddish are not in text, and, and I kept thinking, sadly, you know, where is Moshe Leib Halpern, right? I mean, the, the fragments are all vulgarized, and they're all this stance toward Yiddish of this comic vulgarization, and uh, what can I say? It's just too bad. Um, with regard to your comment about the, the glossary and key to pronunciation, uh, two responses. Um, one is that the American Jewish response to this book, well, actually, Mary Anton and Philip Roth should be spoken about in the same breath because the two books that were denounced from the pulpit repeatedly, I think, more than any other works in Jewish American literary history, were Portnoy's Complaint and the Promised Land. Rabbis warned their congregants not to read the Promised Land, that it would lead, that their children would become assimilated. So it was really scorned and mocked and denounced by the, the, the Jewish establishment. Uh, the, the guide to pronunciation is clearly aimed at a non-Jewish readership because in addition to the pronunciation, uh, there are also definitions of the terms. And the definitions all project um, a, a, a Gentile implied reader that Anton thought would be looking askance at her culture. So to give you an example, the entry for challah, she says that it is a wheaten loaf of peculiar shape eaten on the Sabbath. You sort of wonder, why couldn't you just say a braided bread, you know? But it was a peculiar loaf. It was, you know, that, she anticipated Protestant readers thinking, gee, that's a strange-looking, you know, piece of bread. Um, so it was really, it was for a Gentile readership, clearly.
Okay. You've been waiting patiently and then from Well, thank you for your, for, your, for your comment. The title of the panel actually, though, was Yiddish America, not Yiddish Literature. And I think that we've seen a really interesting and, as I said, rich set of papers which address the many aspects of Yiddish culture today in this country. I'd like to comment on cold sleep. Um, uh, um, I recently had a chance to look at the manuscripts of Call It Sleep um, at the Burke Collection, and one of the interesting things uh, to, to observe is the way that Henry Roth worked at the transliteration and kept reworking it um, so that with the influence of, of Joyce and of eye dialect, he had he, he wanted to get the pronunciation of the of the Hebrew and the or Yiddish and the Yiddishized Hebrew 
he wanted to be accurate. But at the same time, he wanted, for example, in Chad Gadia, to get G-O-D in there, you know, God, or, or you know, to, to sort of, so that you have an arena, I think, in Henry Rothwell, I think he's so brilliant, an arena where modernism, the Anglo-American modernist tradition, and Yiddish language and inflection come together in a way that no other author has, has, has ever done. So I, I, I think that's absolutely true. Catherine, do you want to? Well, actually, I, I wish you'd given a paper on that topic because uh, <laughs> I, I think it was it's, it's sort of uh, in the range of things that were put up here, one of the most important things to consider is this very fluid uh, uh, and series of relationships between Yiddish and, and English in American Jewish writing. And there are a whole series of different configurations uh, and, uh, including uh, translations and, and, and backwards translations and untranslations. Uh, for example, in, in the story um, of Envy by, by Cynthia Ozick, there are translations of, of Yiddish poems that don't exist. They only exist in English, but you can imagine a Yiddish original. Uh, there's been uh, several writers uh, who have imagined works written in English, including in some cases their own works, as having really been written in Yiddish. A case is Will Eisner's uh, Contract with God, which when it was published in a, in a very interesting Yiddish translation only a few years ago, he says, well, this book really is in, in, in sort of gesturally and graphically in Yiddish. It doesn't need to be translated. But of course, he wrote it in English. And this impulse that, that there can be uh, a kind of extra-linguistic Yiddish, uh, which you see in, 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 in the hybrid languages of, of Call It Sleep and in other literary works, Kahn's, uh, uh, Yackel, uh, and in more, more recent phenomena, I think these need to be uh, looked at very, very carefully on a continuum of the way these two languages have been thought about as uh, not two separate languages, but as, uh, as, as merging uh, in literary imaginations. And I think that... I think that it's important also to teach uh, Roth and, and Kahn and Yazirska um, in the context of actual Yiddish texts written in America, as Troim was saying before. And I, I wish that Irena had been here also, because I believe, I don't know what she would have said, but I believe she would have looked closely at Yiddish literature written by women in the United States, and that might have sort of provided a kind of center for the rest of the panel to, to radiate out of. So I think let's only imagine. I think next conference. Yes. Um, okay. I'd like to thank everyone for coming. We're going to adjourn now. Until 2 o'clock, we meet back again in this room. A collection. Wait, hold on, hold on. Don't go anywhere. A series of, of readings uh, by Jewish writers, by American Jewish writers, the easiest place to get lunch is in this building downstairs. For conference participants and the press, we'll be having lunch at level B in multipurpose room C. Thank you very much, and thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I'm, I'm leaving now, but I'm coming back tomorrow, so I don't know if I'll see you tomorrow.